Hey everybody, it's Jamie Dew from Towel and Basin again. I'm flying solo without my good buddy Joe in this one, uh, but I do have here with me today uh, Dr. Ryan Putman, uh, professor of theology here at NOBTS and Level College, and does a lot of great work in theological method and systematics and uh, other things. First of all, welcome. Thanks for being here with me. Thank you for having me. And what else uh, within sort of, I was just kind of mentioning your your repertoire of, of topics that you do, theological methods, systematics. What else would you, anything else you'd throw in there that you love to, to consider? Uh, I am a, a big fan of Mississippi State athletics, uh, and I will I will give you all my opinions <laughs> about SEC football. Um, I meant theology. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah nerd yeah. stuff. Come on, N- man. Nerd stuff, nerd stuff. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in, in cultural studies, too. Okay. So okay. closely related to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hermeneutics in particular. Okay, cool. So. Good. Well, sometime today in some of these podcasts, certainly want to get into the hermeneutical issues. Let me, let's start with something. Uh, I guess this is related to hermeneutics. Um, so here we sit in uh, – you've just finished writing a book and uh, have just completed this on, on theological disagreement, which is certainly relevant today because we have lots and lots and lots of theological disagreement. We have it broadly in the evangelical world, there's theological disagreement. We have it in the Southern Baptist world where we disagree on all sorts of topics theologically. And I think for some people, I would just say it this way, that that's a little surprising, given what we have about the Word of God, that we have a Word that's inspired, we have a Word that's, that's uh, uh, inerrant. And for a lot of people, they would think that, well, if all that's true, we should just be able to re- all pick up the Bible, read the Bible together, and we're going to land on the same page, thinking the same thing and affirming the same thing, but that's not what happens. Why? Yeah, that, that's that's exactly the topic of the book. And, you know, I was drawn to this particular topic just sort of watching, you know, evangelical theological disagreements explode on the, on the Internet. You know, mm-hmm. we've, you know we've, we've always disagreed about things, but now we have a platform where right. everybody who Everybody's has an opinion, yeah. everyone has a microphone, everyone has a platform, everyone <clears throat> has an opportunity to mm-hmm. air their grievances, you know, theological festivus. <laughs> and uh, and and so you know it's really sort of a scary place, <laughs> going through people's Twitter feeds and Facebook right. and you know various blogs and so on and so forth. So mm-hmm. you know I was really drawn to this topic. How does the broader non-Christian world see the way we disagree with each other? Mm-hmm. And of course, our culture. I mean, we we're we're so dramatically divided politically culturally mm-hmm. on so many different on so many different things and you know it's you know we're you know in the thick of an election here this year right. and watching political ads and watching the way that people respond to each other uh, the way that people talk about right or left red or blue um, there's so much hostility right and you would think hey we are we are followers of Jesus we right. have the holy spirit we should be Different than the culture, right. but sometimes book, we're not. Lord, that should unify right. Us. That's yeah. right. But, yeah. but but obviously, you know, that's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there's probably a probably a concern on the one hand for a kind of um, ecumenical viewpoint um, that that says that doctrine's insignificant or unimportant. That mm-hmm. we're just going to do away with our differences. That we're not going to be focused in on the truth. And uh, you know that that has been that has been the downfall of a lot of ecumenical movements over the 20th century. If you look at 
at, at some of the significant ones that sort of just ignored theological differences or, or minimized the importance of, of, of truth in theological discussions. But on the flip side, there's a kind of a tendency towards theological maximalism that says that every single doctrine is is a hill on which to right. die, you know, sure. or a hill for on which to die. You know, it's it's every single doctrine is a, is a is an issue to fight over. Right. And you've got your tribe, I've got my tribe, but my tribe has has the has the most significant access to truth. And mm-hmm. if you really want to truly be faithful to Jesus, you want to you need to come in and be part of my tribe. Right. And so that was really what drove my interest in this topic. And of course, my, my previous work was in theological method. My previous work was in hermeneutics. Mm-hmm. And I, I've always been convinced, since I've been studying theological method anyway, that if more people who took such extreme opinions in these debates would read theological method, it would soften <laughs> the way that they address these things, because right. there's there's this sort of naive mindset mm-hmm. in 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 theology among evangelicals that we just read the Bible and doctrine comes out of it. Right. That the Bible just has systematic theological propositions from which we extract. Right. And they forget that it really is an interpreted process. Right. It's a hermeneutical process. Sure. And so I I, I wanted to look into ways that theological method and and really other disciplines as well would help us make sense of our theological disagreements yeah. and what we should do with them. Yeah, so I, I used to always point out to my students, and Lord willing, I'll get an opportunity to do this again one day when I step back into the classroom. Um, but it, it seemed like a basic point, but it was always, uh, always met with a bit of surprise by my students that there, we have to make the distinction between revelation and doctrine. Or revelation and theology, and I know you'll just, sure. you'll sort of split those up as well. But revelation and theology, let's just say that. And I would say revelation is a God product. Right. God is the one who does that, and right. therefore it does not err. Theology is man's response to that, and therefore it is prone to error. And that's right. why. So, and I would illustrate it, you know, in lots of different ways. So, take the debate between Calvinists and Arminians and such. Right. One of them is wrong. Maybe both of them is wrong, but one of them is wrong if they're saying mutually exclusive things. Right. And so we have to remember that theology is different because it's us responding, and as you've said, there's an interpretive process. So walk us through that part from that point forward. So I pick up the Bible, I read it, you pick up the Bible, and you read it. We, we land in fundamentally different places and different perspectives. Why? What are the factors that contribute to that? So, so again, just say plainly, we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. We do not believe in the inerrancy of interpreters. Right. So the first... I give five axioms to sort of guide why I think in we the have, book, in the, the book, why we out. have theological disagreement. The first being, we are imperfect readers of Scripture. Okay. Number two, that we read the Bible differently. Okay. Number three, we reason about the Bible differently, or we reason about theology differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, number four, we have different feelings. We feel differently about about Scripture. We feel differently about different doctrinal topics. Mm -hmm. And five, we have different biases that are shaped by our traditions. All right, so to circle back on those and go through them one by one, when you say that we are imperfect readers of Scripture, what do you mean by that? Illustrate that. 
So one of the things that I want to unpack for readers who might not be familiar with with some of these concepts is there's a difference between what we call general hermeneutics and special hermeneutics. Okay. Uh, Typically, in evangelical circles, when people hear the word hermeneutics, the first thing that pops into their mind is biblical hermeneutics, thinking Mm -hmm. about the way you read through different genres of Scripture. Sure. But general hermeneutics, um, when you go into a university setting, is really talking about the nature of interpretation. So it's more like philosophy of interpretation. So general is more hermeneutics per se. Right, right. Which would be present in science and history. And and it would be in in, literary departments. Yes. I mean, 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 we're always doing interpretation. That's right. In in, in any place where there's human communication, there's the attempt to communicate, Um, there's always someone who is expressing. Uh, meaning and someone who's trying to decode and interpret meaning and make yep. sense of it and so on and so forth. So general hermeneutics is 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 about that. And now, again, as I mentioned earlier, there's two sort of ways that people go to extremes in hermeneutics, and one of them is that sort of naive approach that you know what I read is the meaning of a text, and you know I, it's it's simple. There's no real interpretive process. There's no way to make an error. Right. People just assume that what I see is what is. Yeah, I mean it's it's a it's a you know it's a it's a it's a sort of a, a fallacy of appearances. You know, mm-hmm. you, whatever you see is is the is the truth. Right. Um, and then on the flip side, you've got this this sort of postmodern trajectory kind of goes through literary departments and now science departments as well throughout Mm -hmm. the 20th century and into the 21st century that says that there is no real objective meaning in a text. There is no real objective truth Mm -hmm. um, that, that we are, that we are, you know, sort of playing an endless game of deconstruction and, and, you know, various forms of reader response. And so, uh, authors don't have meanings, and readers have meanings. So mm-hmm. we we come to the text, and every time we read a text, whether it's a whether it's a you know a, a religious text like scripture, mm-hmm. or whether it's whether it's you know a you know a nonfiction book or work of fiction, we are always reading meaning back into the text. Right. And and so neither one of these are helpful extremes. Right. So what I want to do is make a case that that the text can convey the meaning that an author has or the purpose that an author has, what we would call hermeneutical realism, mm-hmm. that the text really does have a meaning, um, but one that can be also misinterpreted as well. So we want to say, on the one hand, text have meaning, authors have meaning, but on the other hand, we want to say that interpreters are fallible, right. and and they're fallible for a number of different reasons. I mean, number one, the way God made us, we're not we're not God. We don't have godlike minds. Right. Uh, we we have teeny tiny little human brains. Our our rational processes are limited, um, but also we're you know we're shaped by our time and place and culture. Right. Um, we're we're products of a particular uh, particular you know place and time in history. And I think those are things that we have to be aware of, especially when we're reading the Bible, that we're not trying to force 21st century Western ideas back onto the text right. or not really trying to see things through their own eyes or through their own lens in, in their original setting. Mm-hmm. But then I think there's just this other reality that we're sinners. Mm-hmm. And uh, as sinners, we we have selfish, sinful inclinations that I think can distort our reading of text and particularly biblical text because right. uh, 
we don't want the Bible to to contradict some of our some of our pet sins. We don't right. want the Bible to to challenge us, to force us uh, to do something different, to be holy. So, I mean, when I say we're imperfect readers of Scripture, uh, I'm, I'm simply just trying to describe our hermeneutical situation. Yeah. So you're basically then avoiding the naivety of saying. I just read it. It's straightforward. I automatically right. see it perfectly. That's one bad extreme. On the other hand, the postmodern right. extreme of saying there is no meaning in the text or anything else. It's only what I convey into right. the text. And so in short, then what you're saying is there is meaning in the text, but we can goof it up via reading in anachronistically 21st century back or right. our sin causing us to cloud the meaning right. of the text. Okay. Now, now, some people will raise the question <clears throat> at that point, well, in what sense then is Scripture clear? And you know the the Reformation, the perspicuity of Scripture was a key doctrine, mm-hmm. a key issue that 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 Martin Luther advocated for, that uh, that others like Zwingli advocated for. Um, but but understand that the clarity of Scripture doesn't mean that Scripture is easy to understand. I think right. there's some misconceptions about what the doctrine of of scriptural clarity really means, or perspicuity really means. It's not a statement that Scripture is always easy to understand. It's a statement that that Scripture is intelligible, mm-hmm. and that you know, as if you look at like the Westminster Confession. Uh, the the statement made is that not all things alike are plain in Scripture. There are mm-hmm. some things that are very clear, like the gospel, that are clear to understand at a basic level, even if there are layers or nuances that are more difficult or challenging. Mm-hmm. And I think what you'll find across the board is that where we have disputed doctrines mm-hmm. are where we have more difficult texts. Yeah. And uh, sure. and and what we find what we find in common is what we find in in clearer texts that are clearer <laughs> to understand. Right. And along the same lines, simply having the Holy Spirit's work in our life does not guarantee that that we're going to have the same understanding because I don't think that that's what the Holy Spirit's role in illuminating sure. the Scripture is. The Holy Spirit doesn't have a shortcut. For, for, for doing the work of hermeneutics, for doing mm-hmm. the work of interpretation. The Holy Spirit enables us to believe and to understand the biblical text. And, you know, I, I, I frequently tell people, you know, on this campus we've had we've had um, we've had skeptical scholars for, sure. for different debates and, and that sort of thing that we've had on campus over the years. And sitting down and, and talking to these men and these women very, very intelligent people, probably people that know the the Greek and the Hebrew better than I ever will mm-hmm. in, in certain cases um, of biblical text, they can understand the propositions of the biblical text, right. but they don't see the biblical text as true, nor do they see themselves in the biblical text, what the biblical text says about them, about their need for the gospel. Right. And I think that's really what the illumination of the Holy Spirit does. And the, so the illumination of the Holy Spirit does not override the fact that we're imperfect interpreters of Scripture. Okay. Uh, the second thing you said was that we read it differently. Yeah. We read the Scriptures differently. Illustrate what you mean by that. So in this case, we're talking about what we call special hermeneutics mm-hmm. or biblical hermeneutics. And, you know, uh, 
we, we, we put a great deal of emphasis in a seminary setting on proper exegesis of Scripture, right. exegesis of Scripture being reading from the text as opposed to a word that we kind of made up, which is eisegesis, which is reading back into the text. Right. And, uh, and, 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 and so exegesis plays out uh, in various ways. We can, we can see that every level of the exegetical process can contribute to theological disagreement in mm-hmm. some form or fashion. Um, like, uh, like textual criticism, which is you know, kind of the process of weighing um, the different copies of biblical text and, and, and trying to assess what's, what's the best reading of a biblical text. Um, you know, those typically can make some small contributions to theological disagreement, but not all that significant. Maybe like the ending to Mark 16 about whether or not um, we can we can drink poison and live. You know that right. that sort of thing. I right. mean, that's personally I'm not testing that one out myself. Me, I me. mean, I, I think there's room for theological I'll disagreement, and I'll just I'll just you know hang by the side. Yeah. Um, and and but but the more serious things are like when we get into like how words are used in the text, like. You know, like uh, one of our, you know, the the big debated points in in evangelicalism is the role of women in the church, and a lot of that sort of hangs on how we interpret a word. I mean, mm-hmm. that's part of it. Authentane in in uh, in First Timothy uh, two twelve, you know, which is which was what we would call in the, uh, an example of a hapex legomena. It's it's a it's a word that only appears once in the New Testament. So there's there's, 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 you know, on both sides of that theological debate, there's a lot of attention given to that word and what that word means. Um, then some of our, some of our uh, debates are grammatical, mm-hmm. uh, meaning like uh, we, we will debate on, on, on grammatical constructions, like one of the big debates over the last couple of years was over the phrase pistis Christu. Um, whether or not it's talking about faith in Christ or the faith that Christ had. Mm. And, and that, of course, plays a significant role in how we understand some of the other debates related to, to, to uh, Jesus, to justification, new perspective on Paul. I mean, mm-hmm. so a lot of that, you know, kind of hangs on, on, on grammatical phrasing. Um, beyond the exegetical level, the bigger level, where most of our disagreement happens is what I would call the hermeneutical level. And the hermeneutical level is things like uh, like historical context. How do we understand the historical context of a book? Mm-hmm. How do we understand the historical context of, 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 of for instance, Judaism? Mm-hmm. Because how we understand Judaism in the first century will have a huge impact on how we understand Paul's response to Judaism in books right. like Galatians or books like Romans. And, and so historical background and how we sort of reconfigure the past, and again, that itself is an interpretive act. Right. We are trying to piece together history from, from, the, from, the, from what's left behind. That will play a, a significant role in, in how we understand Paul's theological framework mm-hmm. and what he's saying in those respective books. And then literary context. How do you understand genre? I mean, and again, the, the, the sort of the, the, the go-to example of that in the New Testament is, is apocalyptic literature. Mm-hmm. I mean, how do we understand the book of Revelation in large part, you know, sort of hinges on how we make sense of that genre. 
And so if we disagree at the exegetical level, if we disagree at the hermeneutical level, if we disagree um, in, in the background of a book or if we disagree on, on how a particular genre of text functions, then we're going to yield different theological hmm. conclusions. So then what about reasoning differently? That was your third thing that you said, we reason differently about the Scriptures as well or from the Scriptures. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, basically there's three different types of, of, of logic or reasoning that people use, and I'm, I'm, I'm relying pretty heavily on uh, Charles Sanders Peirce, mm-hmm. um, who, who helps us think through this. Of course, deductive reasoning, which mm-hmm. we all know is, is sort of the way that we, we do v- the arguments based on validity, mm-hmm. whether or not a, an argument uh, can be proven in a, in a valid argument. Right. And, and there's uh, not a lot of that in no, there's, Scripture. Well, well, there's not. I mean, there's yeah. there's maybe a few instances of syllogisms, right. like I think in 1 Corinthians 15. Um, but most of the time, we don't move from the Bible to doctrine using those sorts of syllogisms. Right. Right. Now, what I will, I will say is we can use syllogisms to prove a doctrine. Like right. I, I will frequently use a syllogism in class to talk about inerrancy, you know, that God is... Uh, truthful and trustworthy in everything that he does. God inspired scripture, therefore, you know, scripture is trustworthy, trustworthy yeah. and true. I mean, that's that's a sort of syllogism, but you don't you don't typically draw that out of the biblical text that way, right? Um, inductive reasoning, um, at least as the way Peirce defines it, is is basically the way by which we we try to move from from specific to general conclusions, but doing. Uh, doing so in such a way where we demonstrate the probability of a right, hypothesis. Right. This uh, is, if I may, I mean, you, sure. maybe you have a different example in mind, but like in John's gospel, for example, he starts off in the first 18 verses, here is Christ, the God-man, basically, the, the Word, God, who becomes flesh. I mean, that's really sort of what he's saying, and now everything else is marshalling the evidence to support those conclusions. Yeah. And yeah, so I mean, that's a good example of an so inductive argument. We do, we do some of that theologically as well. When we mm-hmm. go, we have, a, again, we, we, we start with the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. We start with an assumption, and we use biblical text as basically proof text. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an inductive sort of theological right. process yeah. um, for, for supporting a biblical claim. But where, where I think my contribution here is, is unique is I'm talking about the way that we, we use creative reasoning to come to hypotheses. Okay. So Peirce uses this category that he calls abduction. Right, which is not kidnapping. Not, not to be confused with kidnapping. Right. Um, it, it goes by a few different names. In fact, contemporary philosophers call it inference to the best explanation. But basically what it's saying is that we... Um, we have a, a creative process by which we form hypotheses. Okay. And so what I'm what I'm saying in 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 biblical interpretation is because the Bible isn't a systematic theology textbook, we have to go to a biblical text and we have to sort of invent a hypothesis, so to speak, in our doctrine. This is what Paul's saying about justification by faith. Mm-hmm. This is what Paul's saying about election. Hmm. This is what Paul's saying about ecclesiology. Paul's the easy one to go to because these are right. didactic letters. Um, but uh, but there's a sort of creative process that our mind uses to sort of draw these sort of conclusions. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, it's an imperfect process because, you know, for instance, 
when, when you deal with things like the church or ecclesiology, the, the Bible doesn't lay out a in anywhere, doesn't lay out, here's a set of instructions for how you should organize the church government. Mm-hmm. You know, when you read First Timothy 3, you're not getting instructions uh, about this is how you should model church government. You're getting descriptions about the character of the offices. Right. And so what, what we're trying to do, basically reading other people's mail, <laughs> yeah. is try to figure out how they did church government and how we can... We can um, you know, sort of reconstruct that. But it's it's sort of like trying to put the puzzle together without the picture on top of the box mm-hmm. and and knowing that we might be missing some of the pieces. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the creative process of abduction is guessing how all the pieces fit together. Okay. Yeah, so, so basically then uh, interpretation, moving from the simple facts that we've got, mm-hmm. which are in many cases incomplete because right. we see certain to, – to your point, we have descriptions about these offices, but we don't have a manual for right. church policy. Church planning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and so then to get to that manual, we have to step in and interpretively Be do creative. Okay. And where we're creative, there's differences. Yeah. These last two real quickly, uh, that we feel differently and we have different biases. Um, unpack those uh, just for a minute or so. Basically what I'm doing when I say we feel differently is, is, is I'm saying that more often than we realize, our feelings or our intuitions drive our theological positions. Right. And we see this in, in, in political positions. We see this in a, a number of different other areas. And, and though we want to say, hey, my, I'm not bringing my feelings to the biblical text. Right. We, we all want to we say do. that. We, we do. We do. I mean, and, and so um, we sometimes have a either really positive response to a theological position or a really negative response based to a theological position. And what we try to do is we try to justify mm-hmm. our position by how we feel. Mm-hmm. And, and people do this in politics. I think we do it in, in interpretation of Scripture as well, and uh, and so um, I, I I try to I try to number one acknowledge this reality, but also mm-hmm. push people to say, hey, our emotions should be under the lordship of Jesus. The right. lordship of Jesus is expressed in the biblical text. So if there's something that I feel mm-hmm. in the Bible is 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 difficult or it's unsettling to me, right. I want to ultimately conform. My, my feelings. I want to conform my doctrine to what the text says. Mm-hmm. And um, in terms of biases, um, the biases we have, we 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 come from different traditions. Mm-hmm. We all do theology outside of a tra- or inside from within a tradition. And um, you know, so sometimes what happens in interpretation is we we tend to stick with the first compelling case that we hear. Mm. So, you, you might have you might have heard a, a a doctrine preached a certain way growing up and never really paid any attention to it. But in college, you hear something a, a pastor at a yeah. conference, or you hear a, a theologian. You read read a theological book, and you're like, "Oh, that sounds compelling." So we tend to like gravitate towards that and stick to it. And 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 the problem with that is that when we come to the biblical text, we're doing everything that we can to justify the position we already have. Right. And, you know, confirmation bias leads to a lot of problems in science. It leads to a lot of problems in courtrooms. 
mm. uh, in in different real world applications, relationships, and 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 relationships, everything. And so, what I try to do in this chapter is I try to talk about ways that you know, say legal scholars say we should alleviate confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Like, we should hear different arguments, different positions, the best arguments, the best positions from other, from other sides of, the, of, of a dispute. Hmm. And I'd say all those things are relevant to, 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 to biblical interpretation and theology as well. I mean, I would encourage my students to read different positions, sure. the best uh, versions or the best representations of different positions, and to kind of make um, judgments for themselves. And then one of the other things I really challenge readers to do is— uh, if you have a position that you disagree with, why don't you try to make a compelling case for it? Mm-hmm. And then I would also say, try to write a really good case against your own position. Mm-hmm. Those sort of things help alleviate our biases. Yeah, in the classroom, I've always, when taking up any almost any particular issue, I will. Um, <clears throat> I've tried. The older I've gotten, especially, tried to make it the case that I'll state the positions of what they are. And then I will probably offer a lot of the arguments against my own position from that point forward, sure. simply as a, as a way of trying to encourage folks to do the same for their own. Right. At the end of the day, I hope that we're much more interested in getting it right than we are in just simply trying to defend our own views. Right. So uh, this is super helpful against those folks uh, or against the perspectives that, that theology is easy. And that it's, uh, man, just read the text and it becomes clear. There is a bit of naivety in that. Right. Uh, and I think that this is super helpful to help help folks see the complication and the difficulty of doing theology. Right. We are finite creatures trying to wrap our heads around an infinite being, right. and that's tough business. So sure. appreciate your work. Title of the book. Uh, the title just of the released. book is When Doctrine Divides the People of God, an Evangelical Approach to Theological Diversity. Very good. Thanks for taking the time to talk about it. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. This is Jamie and Joe again. If you like this podcast, would you leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts? That helps other people find it. And if you have any questions, we'd love to hear about them. Just go to jamiedew.com slash questions and send them in that way. And we'll take a look at the most frequently asked questions and give them a shot.